I'll use this. Shall I use this? Good. Perfect. That didn't scare me at all. It's like my dog last night during the fireworks show. <laughs> Let me invite you to join me in Psalm 84. I've been reading through Fox's Voice of the Martyrs at night. And when I, when I read the story of two uneducated Scottish servants that were hung to their death in 1681, I knew I wanted to include Psalm 84 in our sermon series through the Psalms. It really was the instigator of uh, why we're in Psalm 84 this morning. These two young Scottish women uh, were caught in the British wars of religion. And they were executed for really little more than being, I won't say being in the wrong place at the wrong time because they were in the right place, but they were present at an open air revival meeting. But what jumped out of me about their story was what they were singing as the hangman pushed them off the ledge to their death. Um, they had testified verbally and in writing about their walk with Christ. But as they were being led to the gallows and then subsequently, like I just said, pushed off the gallows, they sang the words of Psalm 84. A psalm that includes three different affirmations of blessing, beatitudes. Sometimes this morning I may interchange the word beatitudes with blessing, but they, this psalm includes three different beatitudes, blessings upon which they were clinging. I was struck by the contrast between what they were affirming as blessings versus what we today might consider blessings. A quick Google search this week re revealed to me that the hashtag blessing uh, was used 143 million times alone on Instagram. And it was coupled with things you might think of, right? Our beautiful kids and grandkids on patchwork quilts on the beach. Hashtag blessed. Or a beautifully spread out meal. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessing. I mean, most of those shots that people put on Instagram along with that tag, they're, 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 they're picturing, or they're, at least they're trying to portray them picturing them living their best life, right? Plates of food, patchwork quilts, trips on the beach, things like that, whatever it is. Yet Psalm 84 contains three blessings that are affirmed by someone, the psalmist, whose life is not one that we would expect to see pictured on social media. Much like those girls, ladies in uh, a century gone by. Psalm 84 is written by a man on a pilgrimage. He's a pilgrim with a deep longing in his heart. In fact, the theme of longing ushers all the way through uh, Psalm 84. He desperately wants to be in a place that's different than the one that he is in. He wants to be in one place in particular. It's not enough to say he doesn't want to be where he is. It's more specific and correct to say he wants to be in one particular place. He longs for the courts of the Lord. He longs to be with God. 
Because as he'll say in Psalm 84, a day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now, we don't know who this guy is, the author of Psalm 84. We don't know where he is, nor do we know exactly what's keeping him away from or keeping him from being or realizing his final destination and hopes of being in the courts of the Lord. And as I've meditated on that this week and this whole psalm, I've, I've kind of concluded that maybe it's best that we don't know. You know, maybe, maybe we don't know the specifics behind his exile or his, his pilgrimage, his endless pursuit of a place that physically eludes him. But it keeps him longing. It keeps him trusting. It keeps him moving forward. Maybe we don't know the details of that, so, so we aren't tempted to think that it's just his journey that this psalm applies to. Because this psalm, Psalm 84, is one that you and I can just so keenly relate to. Why? Because we're all pilgrims. Psalm 84 is divided easily into three stanzas each of which contains its own beatitude, its own blessing. And you can be on the lookout as I read this in verses 4, 5, and 12. The blessings leap off the page. I mean, they're obvious for you to hear, right? But in this psalm, the pilgrim declares the blessedness, blessedness of the believer who in faith is journeying, in his case, toward the temple, right? To be with the Lord. That's his journey. That's his pilgrimage. That's his longing. And the song was meant to be sung by the Korahites, whose job it was. Although they started out as warriors defending the tabernacle and the gates of the Lord, now their job has progressed to being the ones who sing praises in the temple. So that's who it was that was supposed to be singing this. And throughout the centuries, it has been a psalm like the balm of Gilead even to two young ladies who on their pilgrimage find themselves one push away from being in the physical presence of God. So they realize that blessing that we'll study this morning. Join with me in your copy of God's Word. I want to read in total Psalm 84, and then we will look at it together. This is the Word of the Lord. I'll read the title as well so you'll know a little background here. To the choir master... According to the Getith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Number two, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, verse 8. O Lord of God of hosts, hear my prayer. 
Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. Lord, I need your help to communicate it clearly this morning, but I trust in your word to do a work that is lasting. Lord, thank you that your word will not return void. And I pray that you would work this word and this psalm into all of our hearts, but especially into those hearts that need your grace this morning in the midst of their longing, strengthen them and realign their trust in you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we make our way through this psalm in its three distinct stanzas, I want to offer three words as handles for your consideration, right? Um, All directly come right from the text. These are words from the text. The first word is this, longing. The second is strength. And the third is trust. Okay, so let's look first at this first word. It comes from verses 1 through 4. The longing of this pilgrim. The longing of the pilgrim. Notice what it says in verse 1 there. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. So I want to talk a moment about this dwelling place of the Lord because he's specifically speaking of the temple. And and the only way I can within time just kind of give you a snapshot of the goodness of this place for which he longs is to kind of take you back through time and listen to the dedication that David's son Solomon, who built the temple, would have prayed as he dedicated the building. I also want to refer your mind to Queen of Sheba, who made a visitation to see that temple. And then I want to finalize this this section by looking at what Jesus said about this temple, right? So let's do this, and we can do it in quick order um, first by looking at the son of David's dedication. So who I'm talking about is Solomon. I won't take the time to take you back to 1 Kings chapter 8, nor 2 Chronicles chapter 6. But if you'd like some background about what's going on, that's where you would go to read this. But in those two chapters, you can read of Solomon's dedication of the magnificent temple. And the magnificence and grandeur and glory of the temple is laid out clearly right there. I mean, reading through those sections gives you a picture of the glory and the grandeur of the temple that God allowed him to build. Didn't allow his dad to build, David, but allowed Solomon to build this temple. Why was it to be one of grandeur? Well, the temple was where God said to the people that he would dwell with his people. Its beauty and the grandeur and the extravagance of that place, its beauty was in keeping with God's beauty, God's glory, God's greatness. I mean, you read back over those passages and you'll see how God's glory 
toward the end, after his dedication, God's glory so visibly filled the place and filled the temple that the priest couldn't even continue to minister there. This is that place, right? This is the beauty of which the psalmist is speaking. He is longing to get to that place. So we see that in the dedication of Solomon at the temple. You also have a little bit of a clue about this at Queen of Sheba's visitation. I bring this up not only to make Lord willing my point, but also to say here's a, here's a lady who is found and referenced in the New Testament as well, speaking back to this very occasion. So in 1 Kings chapter 10, this is two chapters after the dedication of the temple, the Queen of Sheba comes and makes a visit. She's heard about Solomon. She's heard about the greatness of the kingdom. She's heard about his wisdom. She's heard about his wealth. She's heard about this place. And I'm just taken by what the scripture pops in there about her reaction. When she sees the temple, when she hears his wisdom, when she sees all the grandeur that's made up of that place and space, the scripture says that there was no breath left in her, right? It's almost like, have you been to a place that was so magnificent no one spoke in the crowd? It was like, like this. I think she's just walking through there and she's hearing these things and she's seeing the magnificence of this place and there's no breath left in her. The temple was magnificent and its beauty had no rivals. It's where he wanted to go. Fast forward to Jesus' time, the magnificence of Solomon's temple has been destroyed by enemies and now a new temple has been built and it takes over four decades to build this thing. Right? So the Son of God, Jesus, makes a declaration when He's in the presence of that new temple. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, which happens to be also the place where the Queen of the South is referenced, but Jesus tells the people who are questioning Him at this point, He says, listen, I tell you this. And whenever Jesus says, verily, verily, or I tell you, you know that he's about to do a mic drop, right? And, and he's about to drop the mic by saying this, something greater than this temple is here. What was it that was greater? The one in whom God dwells personally, Jesus is greater than God's dwelling place in Israel. Now that's not been fully understood by anyone yet, but Jesus knows that's what He came to allow everyone to drink from who believed by faith in Him. The temple, hear this clearly, the temple foreshadowed the incarnate Son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He was the true temple to whom the stone and mortar, mortar temple was pointing. The grandeur of the Old Testament Solomon's temple was pointing to the incarnate Christ, the greater temple, the rebuilt temple that Jesus looked at and said, something greater than this temple is here, is pointing to himself. This is why John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. 
This is also what Jesus is getting at and, and what he's alluding to when he cleansed the temple. He walks into the temple, that temple, which he said something greater than this temple is here among you. And he sees that the merchants have made it this, this house of trade. And he is filled with righteous indignation. And he cleanses the temple. He clears it out. And the Jews want to know, listen, what sign are you going to show us that corroborates your authority to do what you've done? And then Jesus says this, you destroyed this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Well, that doesn't make sense to them. They knew how many decades it took to build it. And this guy is saying, destroy it. And in three days, I'm going to build, I'll raise it back up. How can he say this? Because he's not speaking of brick and mortar. Jesus is speaking of the temple of his body. And he did raise it up. In the fullness of time, Jesus was crucified. He was buried. And then three days later, he rose again, becoming and securing the way to be saved for all who trust in faith, by faith in him. When someone is saved, when someone is born again, the spirit of Christ dwells in them. And the born again child of God is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we've, we've considered the beauty of this temple that the psalmist, this pilgrim, is longing to get to. Just the beauty. Now let's consider for a moment the blessing of His presence. So still all underneath this major heading of the word longing, consider with me the blessing of His presence. And what is the object of the pilgrim's longing? We've alluded to it already, right? Verse 2 tells us, My soul longs, yes, my soul faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for the joy to the living God. They're singing out for joy to the living God. My soul longs. When Shannon and I were 25 years old, married, having been married five years, we... We'd finished university here in Chattanooga, and then we moved to Fort Worth, Texas. We're like country gone to town, right, in this big city. And, and we weren't too enamored by the grandeur and bigness of Texas. All we knew is it wasn't Chattanooga. It wasn't home, right? The first Easter that we were going to miss because we were in Fort Worth, Texas studying at seminary, was just about more than we were going to be willing to let pass by us. So when Friday morning gets around and Shan slips off to her job and I've slipped off, not to class that day, but my job that afternoon, we had a plan. We will not miss Easter at mom's house. At mom's house, there was this tradition, not only is the dining room filled with food, there was a table just for desserts in the, in the house that I grew up in. And I didn't want to miss that. I mean, Texas may be great, but they can thank some Tennesseans that it was saved, right? Because we volunteered and bailed them out, and they, they never were all that thrilled to hear that. But Shannon and I cooked up this plan that we're going to get in our car after work, and we're going to drive to Chattanooga. We'll sleep some Saturday. We'll have the day Saturday, go to church, have dinner at mom's house. And then the big thing that we had done for years was have family pictures in the backyard. Snapshots. 
Kids, we used to actually have cameras that had film in it. You would push the button, and then after that film was all filled, you sent it off to have your picture sent back to you for the opportunity to have, I don't know, five or six out of ten people in the picture have their eyes closed, and you were just happy to have it because it was a paper proof that you were somewhere. We were going to be in that picture. We drove home longing to be at home. Had dinner, had the picture, loaded up the Nissan Sentra and drove back 10, 11 hours to Fort Worth, Texas. Slept a little bit and then went back to class on Monday. Homesick. The psalmist is homesick. He's not homesick for mom's cooking or a family photo in the backyard. The psalmist longs to be in the place where God is. And it is a pull that drives him in that onward direction. He so longs to get there that he admits how envious he is of those who actually get to live in the temple. God's gracious hospitality is awesome. He's, the psalmist is even articulating his envy for the birds, the sparrows, and the swallows who get to live in the, the altar areas of the, the temple courts. Not to mention the guys who work there and live there. Notice, listen to how he puts it in Psalm 84. Even the sparrows find a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, he says. Like R.C. Sproul says of this, I mean, the temple was to be like, I mean, it was like heaven on earth. Now, from a New Testament perspective, this verse gives us a glimpse. It gives us a hint, not just of our gathering together to worship. It gives us a glimpse of our unending happiness that we'll in, enjoy someday in heaven. Shannon and I were talking this week about this psalm and we mentioned the lyrics of an old song that some of you might have known, sang maybe, I don't know. I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. No sad goodbyes will there be spoken for time won't matter anymore. The psalmist had a longing to be in the temple, not just to be in the brick and mortar because that's where God was. Let's move on now to the second word that this psalm offers. And that word is strength. The source of strength of the pilgrim is found in verses 5 through 8. Notice these words, blessed are those whose strength is in you. So here you see this second of the third, three beatitudes that the psalmist provides. But what does that look like? What's a tangible expression of what it looks like for one's strength to be in God? In the 50s, 1956 actually, C.S. Lewis was corresponding with a woman who struggled with worry. Worry that she wouldn't have the ability to endure something that might occur. At one point, Lewis, and you know, he would write back and forth letters with a lot of different people, but at one point he's writing back to her and he writes this. Remember, 
One is given strength to bear what happens, not the 101 different things that might happen. Pastor Matt Smethurst adds this question and this, this answer to the question and then offers one more illustration to Lewis's counsel, the question being this, and, and, and when will the strength you need arrive? Are you wondering that yourself? Maybe you're, you're in the middle of your own pilgrimage or your valley or whatever it is may be, and you're wondering, hey, when will the strength that I need survive, arrive? And the answer that he offers, just in time. Just in time. And the illustration he adds to that comes from an old book called The Hiding Place. A prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp was barely holding on to her life. You, you know her. I mean, this is Corey Tinboon, right? She writes in her autobiography, The Hiding Place, this Dutch Christian woman reflecting on her time of provision in the camp. Um, she tells of this story from her childhood. Talking about her dad and teaching her this lesson, she writes, Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed and began to explain something gently to me. Says, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? A train ticket? I sniffed a few times. She's, she's worried about something, right? I sniffed a few times considering this, and she says, why, Daddy, just before we get on the train... And he says, exactly. And then he's, he responded to Corey and says, and our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. You and I would be wise, Redeemer, to remember this this morning. Matt Smithhurst, the pastor, concludes, listen, God will not be rushed. And spiritual growth, as we're growing in faith and learning to trust God in the midst of our pilgrimage, spiritual growth cannot be microwaved. The Christian life is a long and arduous pilgrimage that's one trusting step at a time. And notice what he says is given to us as a tool to help us along the way. It comes in the second part of verse 5. It's the highways of the heart. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, he writes, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. The highways to Zion. This phrase more than likely refers to the raised, well-worn paths and highways that would have led to Jerusalem for pilgrims traveling into Jerusalem who would by faith be making their way to the temple, right? Right? I say more than likely because there's a chance that it, it's referring to some of the instrumentation that would have been used in the temple as praises are being raised from the heart of the people. But more than likely, it's this. Because theirs, pilgrims, theirs was a path or a raised highway. Ours, however, ours is, they're the many means of grace that God has provided us. These pathways of the heart. Like the book of Psalms. I've been so refreshed and encouraged by spending so much time in Psalm 84 this week that it, for me, is a highway to Zion. 
These highways of Zion to Zion strengthen us as we proceed on our heavenly journey when, and, and we're strengthened and we're refreshed in our hearts. Notice what we see in verse 6. These showers of blessing. Here's the verse. As they go through the valleys of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Baca is a weird word. It's a, it makes us think as we're reading this psalm that it's a place. But really, there's no identifiable place that I've come up with or seen or learned about this week that this might be identifying. However, what it is probably identifying, Baca is a name given for a shrub that could thrive in an arid space. So think about this valley of Baca, dryness. He's longing to be somewhere and his, his experience is filled with utter dryness. For the weary traveler or the pilgrim, that valley of Baca, that shrub would have served as a landmark indicating that, listen, there's a spring nearby. There's something given that, that shrub some nourishment. Even a barren place. Even a barren pilgrimage, even a, a, a weary traveler like the Valley of Baca can be a place of refreshment for the pilgrim where God sends rain that refreshes. Visualize in your mind, if you will, uh, the green ve- vegetation that pops up in a dry desert thing, a heavy rain, and then things pop up. It did then. And by God's grace, spiritually, it does now. As you are potentially in arid space, pilgriming toward heaven, pilgriming toward our final home, and and visualizing the difficulties that go with that and experiencing the arid nature of it, realize that God is gracious to provide with you through the means of grace His highways of the heart toward Zion but he's also providing rains that refresh. Just as rain, rains renew the desert, so being in God's presence renews the soul with God-ordained blessing no matter the valley along the way. As we grow in the Lord, we do not become immune to valleys. But Lord willing, we do grow in our faith and we do grow in our confidence that God's sovereign hand is still leading and still strengthening us to finish strong. This is what verse 7 is showing us as the pilgrim envisions those refreshed and strengthened, they're making, and then I've put in my notes, a strong kick to the finish. 143 miles into Ironman in 2015. When I turned turned left onto the walking bridge and I'm beginning to hear crowds and my legs are saying, you don't want to go any farther. Families lined the bridge. I'm hearing the finish line. I'm hearing a speaker say to other people, you are an Ironman. There was a drive for me to press in and farther. Not from my weakness, but from strength to strength to finish strong. And that is what this psalmist is envisioning when he comes to verse 7 
and encouraging those pilgrims and, and thanking God that they're going to make a strong kick to the finish line. He writes this, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So he's, he's visualizing the finish line. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. This brings us to the last word. The word is trust. And you'll understand and appreciate as you think about it how the object of our trust and the object of trust for the pilgrim is the only way if it is rightly placed that we can make a strong kick to the finish line. Notice what he says in verse 10 as he articulates the declaration of his heart. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. In other words, no matter what the world is proclaiming is good and worthy of my attention, if it's anything other than my pursuit of closeness with God, I'd rather have God than the things the world are saying is what I need to be going for. That's the declarations of his heart. It's not arrogance. It's the same thing that Paul would have said in Philippians chapter 3 when he, he says everything else he considers rubbish and loss in comparison to Christ. So we see the declarations of his heart. And now look at verse 11 to the goodness of the Lord that's shown there. Notice this. I want to show you two things that are true about God from verse 11 and two things given by God. We see in verse 11, the first is this, two things true of God. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Think pilgrimage. Think longing. Think travel. Think pursuit of the final destination here. The word favor is translated as grace in some of your versions that you carry, your Bible versions. And honor is translated as glory in some of your versions. So whether you think of this verse in Two of the things that God gives is favor and honor, or you look at it as grace and glory. They're both correct. Now, the Old Testament pilgrim would have certainly known glory, right? But up to this point, their understanding of grace would have, would have been kind of like, hey, God's smiling down on you, right? But for us, on this side of the cross, having had the full revelation of the Scriptures, that have taught us that the cross is significant in the sense that on it, Jesus bore for us all things. And everything related to his passion points us to the full embodiment of grace, right? On the cross, he bore for us our sin. And we celebrate the fact that God has bestowed, he's given grace upon grace for all who believe by giving His one and only begotten Son as our substitute. He bestows grace and glory, favor and honor. In fact, both glory and grace are on full display in the last three stated, and the last of the three stated blessings of this passage. We've looked at two things true of God. We've looked at two things that God gives let me show you one more thing that is true of God. Right? Notice what this verse says. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Listen to this last sentence. No 
good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly despite the fact that the enemy, our, our enemy, the devil, has been trying to convince mankind from the beginning that our Heavenly Father is withholding good for us or from us. The fact remains this. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. How do we know that this is true? How do we know that no good thing will God withhold from us? We know that God will not withhold any good thing from us because He did not withhold the best thing. Jesus. Think about Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Let me point out the last blessing. The last beatitude. And it is a beatitude for the trusting. Hear the words. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Think back with me to the 1600s when two poor servant girls are on a platform with a rope around their neck, having been placed there because they had placed their faith in Christ having studied and probably memorized much of the Word. Before they're pushed off, they're singing a psalm, singing blessings that were true for them and true for us. Blessed, they would sing, are those who dwell in your house. Interesting that what was by faith in one moment, a push later became sight for them. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, Two young servant girls who are led to a platform by the strength of a man who was going to put her to death. Rested because their ultimate strength was not in someone pushing them from behind, but in the God that would eventually say and instantly say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Because of my son, great is your reward. Two girls nearing being pushed off the ledge with a rope around their neck, conclude with this final blessing that they're singing. Is this hashtag blessed? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. I don't know how far they got through this psalm, but I do know that their trust resulted in relationship, not with a place, but a person. And what was by faith became sight for them. And this is the Gospel. And this psalm of pilgrimage is a psalm of hope for us. It has the potential, if you'll rest in Him, and if you'll keep pursuing Him, one step of faith and one step of trust at a time to realign some thinking for us. Ultimately, true blessings begin when one turns from their sin and trusts Jesus for salvation. And additionally, Blessed is the redeemed pilgrim who trusts God with every step of his journey. Three words. Longing, strength, trust. For what is your heart longing this morning? From where are you deriving your strength? And in whom?
are you placing your trust? May it be Jesus. Turn your eyes to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I personally thank You for the time that You've given me in this psalm this morning, this week. And I ask, Lord, that You would do miraculously in the hearts of my friends and family in this room as an encouragement in the Gospel and in Your Son what You have done for me through the words of this psalm. Jesus, thank You that You came and dwelt among us. Thank You that when You came, something greater than the temple came. Thank You that we are not limited by going to a place to meet with Your Father. And thank You that although we have not the ability to walk uprightly on our own, our confidence and celebration is that the One who walked uprightly, Jesus, has taken our place and given us the opportunity to be saved in Him so that when You, Father, look down upon us, You don't see our inadequacies and our inability to walk uprightly, but You see Your Son, Jesus, who did. And we celebrate Him. Lord, help us to walk by faith in Him each and every day until that day where time won't matter anymore. And we're face to face with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.